I feel a little bit like that young pastor who was extremely nervous about his first sermon. And he was with an old, wiser mentor who said to him, I know exactly how you feel. Here's what you can do. When you get up for your sermon, start out by saying, brothers and sisters, I am in love with a woman who is not my wife. Well, that will send a brief shockwave through the congregation, and you quickly follow that up with by saying, she's my mother. And that will relax everyone and relax you, and all will be well. The young minister thought that was a good idea, so the next morning he got up for his sermon, and he began, brothers and sisters, I'm in love with a woman who's not my wife. And there was that shockwave that went through the congregation. It made him more nervous than he thought it would, and so he said it again a little more loudly. Brothers and sisters, I'm in love with a woman who's not my wife. More shock. So he said it a third time, brothers and sisters, I'm in love with a woman who is not my wife, and for the life of me, I can't remember who she is. <laughs> so we began together on this journey of faith. Thanks to Davis a moment ago for reading the scripture. And as we begin together, I think very importantly on this Martin Luther, Q, Martin Luther King Day weekend, thinking about what it means to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God together. It is valuable to explore more deeply the passage that is before us. Some of you heard me say yesterday, my both my grandmothers attended Agnes Scott College and Rosalind Moncrief Jordan, my grandmother on my father's side, uh, when I was younger, gave me an anonymous saying that I have treasured and referred to often. It says this, the Bible is a place where babes can wade and find meaning and scholars can swim and never touch bottom. The Bible is a place where babes can wade and find meaning, and scholars can swim and never touch bottom. We have before us today one of those passages. There are quite a few in the Bible where if someone said to you, what is it you believe? If you can take all the Bible and condense it into one or two or three sentences, what would that be? Well, I just quoted a passage. Micah 6.8 is one of the best. A perfect mission statement. What is it the Lord requires of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God? You could also refer to the 12th chapter of Romans where Paul attempts to condense Jesus' sayings on the Sermon on the Mount into a few brief verses, some of the more controversial things like Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We could refer to the 15th chapter of Luke, which Martin Luther during the Reformation said, if you're looking for a place to find what the Bible really stands for, look at the 15th chapter of Luke. He called it the gospel within the gospel. It's three parables in a row, beginning with the parable of the lost sheep, followed by the parable of the lost coin, followed by concluding with the parable of the lost sons. We sometimes refer to as the parable of the prodigal son, forgetting that there are two sons involved in the story. 
Each of these passages hold within them eternal truth that the church for today needs to be reminded of and called to. It is today's passage, though, from the 10th chapter of Luke that I find most compelling. It came alive for me and has come alive for me over and over in my life and my ministry and my family. And as Davis read it a moment ago, it is an all-encompassing call to love God with all that we are and all that we have. Love God with all your heart, soul, might, and mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you listen carefully to the way that is framed, it is a fascinating three-part imperative. Love God with everything you are and everything you have. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you think about the shape of that command, it's quite interesting. It is calling us to a very important vertical relationship with God of love, a very important horizontal relationship to one another in love, and the important reminder of taking ourselves, our needs seriously, loving ourselves. It's in the shape really of a cross that is to call us and guide us through our lives together as followers of Jesus. Love God with everything we are and everything we have. Love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Finding this balance is really one of the more difficult aspects of the Christian faith. Figuring out how to adequately participate in self-care. To claim every moment for God's greater good. To move out and see around us people just like us, struggling with life decisions and health issues, friendships and difficulties, and looking up and giving glory to God, and being reminded in everyday life that each moment is precious as a gift from God. This passage began to become real to me in a relationship I had at Furman University. I referred to this briefly this morning. Some of you remember the chaplain of Furman University when I was there. His name was L.D. Johnson. And L.D. Johnson was a mentor of mine. In fact, one of the reasons I went to Furman was because he was the chaplain there and he had been a mentor of my father's. And so there was, was this long time connection with him. And so I felt so honored to be there with him and in his presence. And the summer between my junior and senior year, I was the, uh, called upon to be the co-chairperson of what then was called Collegiate Educational Service Corps, CESC. And part of the responsibility was to stay over the summer, prepare for the, the next year, and to work in tandem with Betty Alverson, uh, Miss A, who oversaw that program, and L.D. Johnson, who was our advisor. And so it was thrilling for me to be with both of those great mentors. L.D., during that summer, had a garden, as he did every year, out in a faculty garden plot. He had just contracted phlebitis and was struggling with being able to spend time on his, on his legs. And so I said to him, let me come tomorrow, Saturday, and I'll help you in your garden. 
He said, that's okay, don't worry about that. No, I insist, I need, I wanna help you. So I showed up Saturday morning at the faculty garden plots, there LD was, there was a great big tiller sitting next to this beautiful verdant garden that LD had created. It was the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. It was tomato plants and squash and bell peppers and all these vegetables. In those days, I didn't even know what half of them were, but they were all intricately woven together with this design of, of steel wire that everything was kind of moving up and through and it was all remarkable. It was a very small space, but, but beautifully designed so everything could get enough sun and air and water I said, what is it you'd like for me to do today? He said, well, I, I, I would appreciate it if you just help me till around the outside of, of the garden. He said, the soil needs to be loosened up. You know how to use a tiller. I'd never really gardened before, but I thought, you know, how hard can it be? It's a... So uh, this was a guy, I mean, I didn't want to embarrass myself by saying no, so I, he started it up for me, and I began tilling the soil for L.D. Johnson. Feeling pretty good about myself. Got to the first turn, went around it, got to the second turn. I mentioned that everything was connected by steel wire. And as I went around that second turn, the tiller caught one of the wires going into the, that red clay soil. Not ever having operated the tiller before, I didn't know how to turn it off. So over about the next two and a half minutes, about two-thirds of the tomatoes and about half of the squash got wrapped around that tiller with the, the steel or the, the, the wires. And you can imagine, if you're a gardener, as I am today now, how you felt about your hard work suddenly becoming ripped from the ground and wrapped around a tiller. I stood there kind of in silence once we got the tiller turned off. He stood there kind of in silence. I wasn't quite sure what to say and finally said, well, um, what else can I do for you? <laughs> and uh, he put his hand on my back and he said, um, I think you've done enough for today. Sometimes we gain humility through humiliation. Sometimes we gain humility through hard knocks and failure. Sometimes we gain humility by being in the presence of somebody who forgives and loves in spite of our messiness. And L.D. Johnson modeled that for me, as did many, many other people in my life and ministry. The man that comes to Jesus is kind of wrestling with things, but he doesn't want to admit it. The question that he poses, if you listen carefully, is one that really he's wanting to test Jesus, the Bible says. Later we'll find out he actually wants to justify himself further by an additional question. The question he asks, though, is a very important one. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the key word in this question is a Greek word, zoe, which can mean eternal life, does mean eternal life, but also can mean and does mean abundant life. Now, the interesting thing about the way this passage unfolds is both meanings will be used, one by the man asking the question, 
and the other by Jesus. The question he begins with, though, at least in the way our English translations work, is he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The implication is a, a future reward, something that, that I get because of what I do and how I act. And Jesus, like many a good rabbi, simply responds to his question with another question. What do you read? What do you understand the scripture to, stay, to say? Now, this is an important acknowledgement. This is from scripture. Jesus is helping this man remember what he already knows. Jesus is aware. This is a smart guy. He's been around the block a few times. Jesus knows he knows the answer, at least in part. And so the man's response is quoting directly from what's called the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he quotes from another part of the Torah, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus' response is very interesting and quite telling. Jesus says to this man, you're exactly right. Do this and our English translation says, as Davis read it a moment ago, do this and you will live. But Jesus shifts both the tense and the meaning. The man is thinking more in terms, it appears, of future tense, eternal life later on. Jesus shifts the time frame. Do this and you will, now present tense, live. Better translation though, because Jesus now is using the other aspect of this Greek word abundant life. Jesus says, really, the better translation is, do this and you will come alive. If you can figure this out, if you can get the balance of loving God, loving neighbor, loving self, if you can figure out how this works most redemptively in our world, you will come alive. This is one of those lingering questions for the church and for all of us. Figuring this balance out. Learning how to love God, love neighbor, love self in ways that bring life not only to us, but to those around us. I have the pleasure in North Carolina of being what's, on, what's called the, the Faith Formation Council of North Carolina CBF. And as a part of that, we, we brought in at one point a pastor to share some of his story of what was happening at Zebulon Baptist Church in Zebulon, North Carolina. There were all kinds of exciting things that were going on, and we wanted to get him to talk a little bit about what was happening. And the story that, that struck me most of the things he was describing was this one. It was about a man in his congregation named Kevin. Kevin was about 40 years old. He had three children in elementary school, and while each child was moving through the grades, he had gradually moved up the rankings and had become president of the PTA. Did all kinds of other volunteer services in the, in the school. And so the pastor at our formations council meeting, faith formations council meeting was telling the story. He said he got a call one day, principal of the school where Kevin was PTA president. And the principal said, I wanted to tell you for a moment about Kevin. And the pastor said his first response was, uh-oh, what's happened? And she said to him, 
As you know, Kevin has been president of our PTA for the last six years. He's been involved in all these committees, but what you may not know is the difference that Kevin has made in our school. How he has supported our teachers, been there for our parents, encouraged our children. He has led meetings in good and solid ways. He's done all these things that I've appreciated so much. And she said, last week I finally asked him, Kevin, where did you learn to do all this? How did you learn to be so good and helpful and and display such positive, redemptive leadership? And she said to the pastor, what he told me was, I learned it at my church. I've been chair of deacons, I've worked in the nursery, I've taught Sunday school, I've been on committees, I've been with good people. I grew up in a church where I was nurtured by smart, caring people who were very concerned about how their lives translated into the community. This is what Daryl Guter, I mentioned earlier in our session before, uh, professor formerly at, at Columbia, where I had the privilege to be one of his students, used to call the missional church. It means discovering how to translate this scripture and what we learn on Sunday mornings into our neighborhoods and our families and our schools and our jobs. So that this isn't just about us here, it's about us beyond here. It's about our lives being redemptive and good and right and beautiful where we work, so that people in schools like Kevin's notice something different, feel a presence, notice a peace that passes all understanding and experiences a love that makes them wonder, where did you learn that? Where's that coming from? What a powerful example for church today, for you and for me and for this calling that all of us have to move from here to allow the love that we have for one another and for God to be transformative in the places we go and the people we touch during the week. What's interesting about this passage now is that it concludes with this first part, Jesus saying, do this and you will come alive. You'll be surprised. What a difference you can make in the lives of other people. But the scripture continues. This is where the man now doesn't stop with the conclusion of this beginning part. Seeking to justify himself, the Bible says. He says this next question. Who then is my neighbor? A poignant, vital question for this weekend. Not just this weekend with us, but this weekend remembering Dr. Martin Luther King and the struggles that our nation still has in coming to grips with who is my neighbor really? How do we make this work? How do we live with people that we don't really understand and in many cases don't even want to like? So it's very interesting when this man seeking to justify himself, ask Jesus this question. Guess what Jesus does? He does what any smart preacher would do, and that is he tells a story. 
He doesn't just give an answer. He provokes thinking deeply. And what he does is extraordinarily controversial. It is subversive, and it causes to be very uncomfortable. Because what Jesus does, of course, is tell a story about a controversial figure. We know simply as the Good Samaritan. But in Jesus' day, those two words would never have been used together. The Samaritan, you see, was the ultimate other. Now, it's, it's fascinating that the story unfolds in sort of a traditional way. The first two characters that come marching through on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a priest and a Levite, traditional Jewish characters. And for the audience of Jesus, just like you and me, regular folks, the expectation in the traditional storytelling technique was that you start with an important guy, you go to a next important guy, the hero of the story now is going to be people like you and me, regular folks. Jesus is going to do this, make us feel better about ourselves, and so the, the audience listening to this story behind the lawyer asking the question are expecting the culmination of the story to be a positive affirmation of regular Jewishness of middle-class folks. But that's not what Jesus does. What Jesus does is fascinating. He actually kind of quotes, but not really, another scripture. Now remember, we've, we've had the lawyer pull from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the Shema. Love God with everything you are and everything you have. He also pulled from Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Both central to the Torah message. What Jesus does is very subtle and incredibly powerful. Jesus knows there's another passage just below Leviticus 19, 18. Leviticus 19, 34, I encourage you to look it up a little bit later, but I'll quote it for you now. It says, not love your neighbor as you love yourself, Leviticus 19, 34. Love the alien as you love yourself. For you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Listen again. Love the alien as you love yourself. For you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. And remember what it felt like. You may not have been there, but surely you've heard the stories. Surely you can imagine how it feels to be not just a second-class citizen, but a refugee, an alien. In Spanish, the word translated in the Bible is immigrante, an immigrant. In French, the word translated is étranger, the stranger. In English, we say alien, we say other, we say somebody who's not us. So let's have the, pass the offering again. We're ready to, to uh, <laughs> this is subversive material. Now Jesus doesn't quote this passage, but what does the story do? It unveils the very meaning of Luke 19, 34. 
Jesus tells a story now, not about a priest being a hero or a Levite being a Hebrew, a hero, or a, a middle class or peasant Jewish person being a hero. The hero of the story is the alien, the immigrant, the stranger, the other also known as a Samaritan. Oh, this is, this is amazing that we for so long have overlooked the power of this story that has never been more relevant than right now. When we ask the question about what does it mean to be church, we talked yesterday and this morning again about this idea of calling, God calling us to, to fulfill the hopes and dreams that God has for us in this place, in our neighborhoods and families and businesses and schools. But it also is this, this other part of this passage that becomes far more central than we ever get credit for. To love God, to love neighbor, to love self, and to love other. Jesus is saying to this man, if you do this, you will come alive. You will be surprised how this works, how redemptive it can be to allow God to open hearts and minds, not just in you, but in those around you. It can be amazing. So this is our calling this day. Here again, the power of these words where babes can swim and can wade and find meaning, but scholars can swim and never touch bottom because we're always learning something new or pushed in a new way, challenged with new things and have eyes open and hearts touched. Brothers and sisters, may we come alive and may it be together. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.